Hey everybody, this is Pastor Todd, and you're listening to the Grace Community Church Sermon Podcast. If you're watching us for the first time today, you're at Grace Community Church, and we are physically in the city of Guelph, and so glad to be um, spending this time with you today. I hope as we come now to the preaching of God's Word that you experience the life of God in a real way. If you brought your kids, thank you for being brave and bringing your kids to church. Hi, Grace kids. Wave at Pastor Todd, would you? just want to see you. There you are. There's the Brace girls. Hi, Brace girls. There's the Cowan boys. There's some kids up there. Oh, that's okay. Hi. Good to see you guys. See the barbers over here. Welcome back to church. For those of you who haven't been here in a while, it's so nice to see you. Jesse Wilkes, I see you, buddy. So happy to see you here. And uh, I hope it's, uh, as we used to say, worth the drive to Acton. <clears throat> Grace kids, feel free to uh, lay on the floor, under the chairs, wherever you need to be with your quiet bags. Thank you to Annika and Nina for making those happen. Just appreciate having you here so very much. I want to um, just say one thing off the top because I will probably forget at the end of today's service. Just want to remind you about the survey that went out this week. We are working on plans to open up worship at Martin and potentially shift our worship times here downtown. Uh, We don't want to do this without your input, so the survey is open until the end of today. So if you have not yet replied to that survey, please do so. It doesn't take very long, and uh, we would love to have you um, help us as we make these decisions. That's uh, my man Chris Goodwin. I just didn't know who the gangster-looking guy up there was in camo and a thing. So I love you, Chris. Good to see you, buddy. So please uh, fill out that survey for us. That'll help us um, make some exciting decisions in the coming weeks. We continue our series today called Best Ever. And I'm hoping to help you develop a best ever kind of life as you conform your life to the way of Jesus. We're preaching through the book of Micah. This is a prophetic book, meaning it's a book of prophecy. And I said this last week, and I will continue to say it every week throughout this series. When you're interacting with a book of prophecy, you need to ask yourself two questions. The first question is, does this speak to me today? And I just want you to know that it's totally okay to experience a week where the sermon doesn't speak to you in a particularly poignant way. I do a lot of work behind the scenes throughout the week to make sure that that doesn't happen, but I don't know each of you intimately. I don't know exactly where you're at or what your week has been like, so I can't orchestrate anything. So if you're here and the sermon doesn't you know, feel like it's being preached directly to you on a given week, that's okay. That means that that word of prophecy wasn't intended for you today. But there's a chance that something we explore today will jump off the page and, as I like to say, very spiritually, bite you in the butt. And if it bites you in the butt, I want to invite you, because this is a book of prophecy, to pay attention. Prophecy is forth-telling the word of God. Okay, so it's a book of prophecy. Ask yourself, is this for me today? The second question you need to ask yourself, if it is, is what are the ramifications? Okay, so the word of the Lord is never given in biblical history just for fun. It's always given for a purpose. So if you identify any of these weeks that this word or part of this word was for you, immediately ask yourself the second question, what are the ramifications? Usually that involves changing something in your life. Today, I want to uh, help you with the question of prosperity. So here's a a question to start us off. Um, Is a best ever kind of life a prosperous one? You need to ruminate on that. Think on that. If we're looking to live 
best ever kind of lives. Is a best ever kind of life necessarily a prosperous one? Let's define the terms. Prosperous, marked by success or economic well-being. It's important to know that even in our Bible as we currently have it today, there is a marked difference between a Jewish version or vision of prosperity and a Christian one. In the Jewish scriptures, here's, I mean, you could, there's got to be hundreds of references. I didn't look them all up. I didn't have time this week. But hundreds of references to prosperity and what it looks like. And there's one that I think encapsulates the Jewish perspective, the perspective from the Jewish scriptures very well. Observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in obedience to him and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and regulations as written in the laws of Moses. Do this so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. 1 Kings 2.3 Now, a problem often arises when Christian people take these words out of 1 Kings 2, words that were actually spoken from King David to his son Solomon, as David is getting ready to pass the throne and the kingdom onto him. These are part of David's final words to his son Solomon. And so when Christian people take the words of King David's to the future King Solomon and seek to apply them to their lives with a one-to-one ratio, this inevitably leads to disappointment. Because I never met anyone who, one, kept the laws of Moses fully, or two, prospered in all they do wherever they go. Can anyone say amen? And maybe you felt that tension, like, the Bible says that if you keep God's commands, you will prosper in everything you do and wherever you go. Well, yes, in the Bible, it is recorded that King David said that to his son Solomon. That's a very Jewish point of view on prosperity. Obey God and it will go well with you. This is part of the deal that God cut with the Jewish forefather Abraham. In essence, saying to him, I will be your God, you will be my person. You have to obey me to keep this deal going. Okay? That's a Jewish perspective on prosperity. The Christian perspective on prosperity is, um, dare I say it, completely different. Here is uh, Mark chapter 10, beginning at the 17th verse. Jesus is on a journey. And as he sets out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, the rich man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples, who were Jews, were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, Lord, I love Peter, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children's or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. So two things I want to draw out from uh, Mark 10. A hundredfold sounds pretty good. Wow, a hundred times what I have? Sign me up for that. <laughs> right? Somebody ought to say amen. I'll take that one. Right? Sure, sign me up. With persecutions. <laughs> we almost never preach those two with equal emphasis. A hundredfold with persecutions. The other thing I want to point out, um, so the point there, right, is that you should expect to be persecuted. Hallelujah. I'm so glad I came to church. <laughs> with persecutions. And then the other thing to think about is how is it exactly that we are going to get a hundred times what we have? Do you actually think that following Jesus, giving away everything you have, is going to result in him timesing your salary by 100? Or do you think it's possible that because you are likely to have around 100 to 120, which is the typical grouping that most people fall into in terms of their relational circle, do you think it's possible that as you fall into a relational circle that is filled with Jesus' followers, that when it comes time for you to be in need, one of those 100, two of those 100, somebody shout, three of those 100 will step in to share with you so that you end up having 100 times what you need. I think that's what it's talking about there. This is Christian prosperity, reading from Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 42. This is talking about the first church and their modus operandi, how they lived out their faith in Jesus in the very earliest days of God's church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came on every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, here it is, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Does that um, strike at least a little bit of shock and awe in your heart? All things in common. What's mine is yours. As anyone had need. A friend of mine lent me his trailer and his truck this week to go and do a pickup that I needed to do. Because he lent me his truck and his trailer, I did not have to spend, it probably would have cost me at least 200 maybe $250 to rent an equivalent truck and trailer to do the pickup that I needed to do this week. But because he loves Jesus and because he loves me, he let me use those tools for free. They had all things in common and they distributed to one another as anyone had need. Let's just make a fine point of it. Our culture's perspective on prosperity is the opposite of what you have just heard. The opposite. So in my quest to uh, <clears throat> help you live a best ever kind of life, um, I want to um, help you this morning <clears throat> to break up with prosperity at any cost. 
Hear the words of Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and who work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be a time of disaster. In that day, they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me to an apostate. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. Do not preach. Thus, they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. These are the people reacting to Micah's word. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? His response. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. Arise and go, for this is no place to rest. Because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So the first way to break up with prosperity at any cost. Let me just say, there's a difference between prosperity and prosperity at any cost. Most of the people you know are living for prosperity at any cost. They'll do whatever it takes to attain the North American dream. First thing you got to do if you want to break up with prosperity at any cost is remember that life is a serious business. We get this out of verse 1. Woe to those. Every time the Bible says woe, you ought to say woe. Right? It says woe, W-O-E. You say woe, W-H-O-A. Okay, woe is like a slap to the face. Pay attention. This is about to get ugly. Woe. This is a serious word for a serious moment. Here's the applicable point I hope for you. Take life seriously. Take it seriously. If you're going to party, seriously party. You're like, say what? Just... Well, I'll mention his name later. You'll know who I'm talking about when I get to it. If you're going to throw a party, throw a serious party. If you're going to take a nap, take a serious nap. If you ever had one of those naps where you lay down on your right side, wake up an hour later, think, mm, I'm not done quite yet. Lay over on your left side and sleep for another hour. Once in a while, if I preach really good, that happens to me. I am just that tired. If you're going to nap, take a serious nap. If you're going to do some work, do a serious amount of work. If you're going to have fun, have a serious amount of fun. While remembering that it is seriously wrong to pursue prosperity at any cost. Seriously wrong. Don't do it. Okay? Decide to reject the way most of our world lives. Stop pursuing prosperity at any cost by managing your preoccupations and what you do every day, points two and three. I'm still in verse one. Look at those two words there, who devise. 
and work. Devise and work. The word devise in the Hebrew is choshvei, those who think of. And the implication of choshvei in the Hebrew is they think about it all the time. So this is not a concept that just occurs to you once and then it passes from your imagination. It is a concept that finds a seat in your heart and dwells there. Choshvei, those who devise. They think about it all the time. They're obsessed with it. And work. The word here for work is po'alei. And the word po'alei is like the word for a worker, like a ditch digger, a bricklayer, a house framer, a farmer, somebody who does something practical day after day after day, and they've gotten so good at it that they can do it without thinking. That's what po'ale implies. Those who devise and work. So work here is referring to those things, hear me church, that you consistently do without thinking. Stop obsessing about attaining prosperity at any cost and stop living on self-focused autopilots. Don't wave at me, but how many of you know how easy it is to slip into living on self-focused autopilot. I just want to remind you that it's your default setting. I'm not trying to make you feel bad because this is true of all of us. It's true of me. Okay, Self-focused autopilot is like one click of a button away, except you don't even have to undertake the physical operation of pressing a button. The switch flips in your mind. And from one moment to the next, you go from looking to serve those around you because Jesus has loved you to looking out for number one. Let me invite you, if you want to break up with prosperity at any cost, to consider what you think about and what you do in light of Jesus and his way. And be content and never use power to take and live a life that fights oppression. We get this out of verse 2. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his in inheritance. Covet. To covet, this is so, so timely. To covet is to want something someone else has. Hashtag social media, anyone? I mean, I don't want to be one more preacher who rails against social media and its ills. I'm on social media. There are aspects of it that I enjoy. But I have to guard my heart against coveting your vacations and your fancy car and your beautiful wife and your perfect life, and your dazzling clothes, and your life of ease, and your skill in the kitchen, and your genius as an interior decorator, and your wisdom as a sage. Have you noticed that everybody is a sage these days? All you gotta do is post a picture of your backyard and some quote that you stole from somebody, and all of a sudden you're an authority on how to live a better life. It's so annoying. We are all stuck in a feedback loop of covetousness. And you need to be aware of it, and you need to cut that line so that you do not end up unconsciously living a life that is constantly striving to be someone else's life. Covetousness is a big problem. You need to kill it if you want to break up with the urge to pursue prosperity at any cost. You must never take anything by force. You seize a man's fields 
Let's try it this way. Has anyone ever taken anything from you by force? How'd that feel? Somebody tell me how that felt. Shout it out. It felt? It felt bad. It felt awful. It's one of the worst things that can ever happen to anybody when someone takes something from them by force. Okay? It is easy for us when we get angry, when we get upset, when we begin functioning on autopilot. It is easy for us to just, in a moment of weakness, take something by force. Never do it. And never, ever be someone who oppresses anyone. Oppression is something that God hates. So I want to invite you to ask yourself this week, moment by moment, am I contributing to or working against the power imbalances that I encounter in my daily life? Am I making it worse or am I making it better? Because power imbalances exist. There's no denying it. They exist at every strata of our society. And as a Christian, it is your job to fight against oppression. Let me remind you of an easy way to do this. Going back to a quote we already referred to this morning. They had all things in common. And they distributed to any as they had need. You can combat the oppression of the world, all receive it, church, by giving. You can combat injustice by giving. You can combat hate by giving. You can combat poverty by giving. Moment by moment, ask yourself, what do I need to give in this moment to make it right? I want to ask you to ask yourself, am I even living like a Christian most of the time? Because I know for me, there are moments every week when I need to repent quickly and deeply. Because I am not acting like much of a Christian at all. Why must I commend repentance to you with such fervor? Because if you do not repent, you end up with God as your adversary. And how many of you know that having God as an adversary is not a very good thing. Not a very good idea. Consider verses 3 through 5. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord." I want you to notice here in verse 2, who is devising disaster? Look at the text and answer the question for yourself in your mind. Who is devising disaster? God is devising disaster. (laughs) Be very, very afraid. Therefore, I, I, he's devising disaster. We forget that Jesus is the lamb that was slain and the lion of Judah's tribe. We forget that he's not to be trifled with. (laughs) To preach it like I'm from Alabama, we forget that he is God. We forget that he is God. I've been doing this these last few weeks. I've been preaching about the supremacy of Christ. And so I've been challenging myself to just think on his greatness as I drive throughout my days. I like take it to its logical extent. Push the concept as far as you can. 
Think about how great God is. How awesome and mighty. How majestic. How utterly unbelievable He is in His vastness. And then draw that gigantic picture back to itty bitty you trying to mess with Him, His way, and His world. God forbid God should be our adversary. I think we either don't consider God at all, or if we do, we think of Him much more anemically than we should. It's time to stop. Either not thinking of God, or thinking of Him much more anemically than we should, is why so many people are so messed up. There's your answer right there. Why? Because they're living like they are God, and they are busily pursuing prosperity at any cost. And this has led them, point number eight, into a disastrously ruinous life from which they cannot escape. You saw that outlined in verses three through five. I'll hit a few of the segments for you. Quote, from which you cannot remove your necks. A time of disaster. We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people. How he removes it from me. To an apostate, he allots our fields. I say this routinely, but every time I get a chance from the text to say it again, I love to say it again. You don't need to convince anybody that Jesus is the way. All you need to do is lovingly walk in relationship with them so that when their idolatrous living leads them to the end of their rope, and when they finally break down and ask you for the reason for the hope that is in you, according to 1 Peter 3.15, you can say that you have hope only because of Jesus. And let me just say that prosperous, highly educated North American people never consider Jesus but at the end of their rope. So that's how you need to live. In love, walking in relationship with people, with your antenna perked up to when they come to the end of their rope. You'll see it. They'll have this blank expression. They might be pale. Maybe they're weeping. They'll take you aside in a quiet moment. And they will finally ask that question that you've been praying for them to ask for years. Okay, I can't take it anymore. Why is it that life doesn't seem to be crushing your soul in the same way in which it's crushing mine? That is your moment, Christian, to become an evangelist and say, I got to tell you the truth. It's because of Jesus. And if this person is your friend, and if you have walked with them in love for years, they will not write you off. They will take you seriously because they have taken you seriously for years. And when you finally say to them that it's because of Jesus that you have hope, your friend at the end of their rope will ask you, tell me more. How can I learn about this Jesus? And that is when you bring them to church. And I don't mean just bring them to a physical building because I've been telling you week after week that the church is the ecclesia, the gathered people of God who then scatter with him on his mission and culture. So when you bring them into contact with your friends who are the ecclesia, who are the gathered people of God, what happens? They begin to sense that there is something different about these people, that they march to the beat of a different drum, that the world does not weigh upon them like it weighs upon them because why? His yoke is easy and his burden is light. When you bring a normal person around a bunch of real Christian people, they cannot help but notice the difference. And after a matter of days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, sometimes years, they begin to crave that otherness for themselves. 
And this leads to that moment when perhaps in a worship service, perhaps quietly in their own bedroom, they bow the knee to Jesus and they ask him for help. Help me, Lord. That's how it works. You bring them to the ecclesia so that they can taste and see that the Lord is good for themselves, Psalm 34, 8. They taste and see that the Lord is good at a serious party thrown by Jared Irvin. Anyone who's ever been to one of Jared Irvin's parties said, Amen. Like, this is a rocking party, but there's something different about it. That's the Holy Spirit in Jared's chapel. Then one day they go to my sister Kate Hall Smith's house. And after Sunday lunch, she says, well, pick your couch. There's two in the living room, one in the study. There's a really comfy carpet in the study. If you want to lie down there, that's good too. What are you talking about? Oh, we nap on Sunday afternoons. And then they lay down and they take a serious nap. Why? Because they're in the ecclesia and the Holy Spirit is in the ecclesia. And you never slept so good as you did that time when you slept with the Holy Spirit by your side. And then they go do some serious work at Chris Jones's house. And if I know anything about Chris Jones, he probably has my wife, Nikki Fraser Canelon, helping him do that serious work because neither of them can help themselves. And these people who are encountering the ecclesia for the first time go, I've never seen anybody work like this. I've never, never seen anybody work without complaining. I've never seen anybody work without needing to be goaded. I've never seen anybody work with no care for self-interest or what they're going to get out of it. And as they go to have some serious fun at my buddy Sam Diaz's house, they realize, wow, God must be fun too. I'm not telling you about the people in my life so that you'll wish you knew these people. I'm telling you about the people in my life so that you will think about the people in your life. The Christian, Jesus-loving people who together with you are the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ. When you bring normal people to the ecclesia, you know what these normal people realize? And band, you can join me on stage because I'm almost done. Hear me now, church. When normal people get around the ecclesia, they realize that their east of Eden life sucks. That it sucks. Their east of Eden life sucks. Look at verse 5 as we close. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. My son Sam was asking me about preaching this week. He's saying, Dad, what's the difference between like average preaching and really good preaching? I said, well, there's a whole bunch of things, and we talked for almost an hour about it. I said, but one of the things that's cool about good preaching is that the preacher, if they're worth their salt, will recognize connections between the text. And so they'll read something like this from Micah and realize that this is an echo of Numbers 26, where we read, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers they shall inherit. They shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided according to lot between the larger and the smaller. 
And then as soon as you heard the Bible talking about lands being inherited, you would hear the echo of Genesis chapter 1 in your ears, beginning at the 26th verse. Then God said to our first parents, Adam and Eve, or he said rather, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have, here it is, dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And here's what he said to them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. So here is the point, and I hope this hits you real good. The curse that results from pursuing prosperity at any cost is the reversal of Eden's blessing and the annulment of your right to the promised land. And yes, I know that you are not Adam and Eve, but you are descended from them. And yes, I know that you are not Jewish, but if you belong to Jesus, you have been adopted into the promise of Abraham. So I love this point. If you belong to Jesus, stop living like you're stuck east of Eden. Why east of Eden? Because when God banished Adam and Eve from the garden, he banished them east of Eden. And so you can think, of receive it of all of our life here in the troubled shadowlands as life east of Eden. Friend, if you belong to Jesus, stop living like you're stuck east of Eden. Don't live like the rebels live. Live instead like you are from the worlds to come where life is a serious business, where Jesus is your preoccupation and you do what he has called you to do contentedly, meekly, justly with God as your friend, not your adversary, living a beautiful life instead of the disastrous one you used to be trapped in, no longer east of Eden, but a citizen of the new Jerusalem from the world to come. Sounds pretty best ever to me. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. I hope you're leaving feeling encouraged. If you have any questions for us or you'd like to pay us a visit, you can find all the info you need on our website, gracecommunity.ca.